I'm Paul Heron, and this is episode 16 of the Ana East Need podcast. Today, we'll talk with one of the contributors to the new 13th volume of A Cafe in Space, the Ana East Need Literary Journal, Australian scholar Jessica Gilby, about Neen's relationship with her mother. Jessica, welcome to the show. Hi, Paul. How are you? Well, I'm fine. I'm glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. It's really a, a blessing to be invited. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Um, so I've just completed my PhD studies. I wrote my doctorate on Anais Nin and how she reconceived of the maternal. Um, I live in Sydney, Australia, so a little bit far from you in the archives, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I suppose I've spent my life enjoying Anais Nin's writing or at least a large portion of it. Um, and I also write myself, I write poetry in my own diaries and a little bit of fiction. Yeah, that's a little bit about me. So how did you uh, come upon Annie Eastney? How were you introduced to her? Well, um, well, I started off a very voracious reader from a young age. Uh, and I was lo- always looking for new material uh, to sort of devour. And... I think also as a young girl, I was very curious, sexually curious. And uh, they're, they're, I think even today in society, but, but definitely um, a few years ago, it's, it was taboo for a young girl to be sexually curious. Girls were shamed for that. Um, and, and it wasn't something that was spoken about. And before, we didn't have the internet either, so there were no sort of means of looking things up, I guess, other mm-hmm. than finding maybe a, a book here and there, <laughs> uh, which was very hard to find. Believe me, I sought out the local library and <laughs> looked for sexy books. <laughs> um, but, but I suppose at, at some point I came across uh, that genre um, I went to a secondhand bookstore with my family and managed to pretty much accidentally pick up a collection of erotic stories. And it was something that I'd just never come across before and found really, really intriguing. And then later when I was 12 or 13 in a city bookstore, I actually deliberately looked for erotic writing. Uh, but I wasn't interested in you know, Mills and Boone, in characters who I couldn't relate to who weren't beautifully written. And I was just sort of seeing what else was out there and they had um, not an entire shelf but they had a little section of a a shelf dedicated to a nice work Uh, so yeah so I picked up um, I think it was Henry and June as well as uh, Delta of Venus and I never looked back (laughs) (laughs) yeah so I was intellectually famished I was sexually curious and she just well that was a bounty and a treasure to come across Nin's work. And so once yeah. you started reading it, um, what, what was it about the writing that sucked you in? Mm-hmm. I, I suppose it was, it was a combination of things. It was the passion and the poetry mm-hmm. um, and the insights. And a female writer that I could actually relate to um, as I was saying, there was Mills and Boone, um, but <laughs> that to me didn't feel real and that kind of fantasy didn't feel like my fantasy. Um, and much later, I suppose, I read about um, what 
Judith Fatterly, uh, she wrote a feminist resistance reader, uh, described as emasculation, but with an I, I am, instead of the emasculation we usually hear of, which is yeah. the common sort of ball-breaking woman that is a common trope in, in Western society. And emasculation instead refers to, I guess, the position that females and female intellectuals often find themselves where there aren't very many strong role models um, and authors out there. And so we're sort of taught from a young age, from reading the classics, from reading the Western canon, to imagine ourselves in the position of the male because the default position and the default complex characters are often male as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose I found myself doing that, but yet I wasn't those men, but I certainly wasn't, I, I didn't feel that I was the insipid 2D characters that women were often betrayed as either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, to find an Anais, uh, to find a woman who wrote about what I felt were feminine desires and what I know that she was trying to communicate as feminine desires um, was such a new thing. It was, a, it was just she was a complex person with complex desires and, and an interesting life and I found that truly liberating. And the women I knew personally, there were some powerful women in my life, sure, but I didn't feel that my desires aligned with theirs so I Mm -hmm. couldn't really look at them and the way they lived their lives as instructing how I could live my life. So it was all personal, very personal. Yeah, 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 deeply personal. So, I mean, yeah, everything that Nin writes is so intimate and, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Was it on ease that inspired you to start writing or was that in your blood? You've been, from the day you were born, a writer, how did that start out? I certainly wrote from a very young age. I think as soon as I learned to read, I was trying to make books of my own as well. Mm. Um, I'd make little booklets for my parents and tell stories and uh, just reflect on what I guess I was learning around me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And I kept I kept diaries from quite a young age too before I'd read Anais. Um, so for me, it was more like finding... Um, somebody who I connected to and who resonated with me um, with already sort of partially developed, I guess, um, texts. So, so yeah, I just recognize myself in her and vice versa. (laughs) Because before Ani started writing her diary, uh, she was also putting together little books. Um, You know, she had like a a monthly magazine uh, that, that she would, you know, hand color and write out. And in it would be poetry and little stories and uh, yeah. drawings of characters and and all sorts of things. And um, you know, and she was very uh, organized about how she went about it. You know, it would. I mean, she had like the the issue number, the series number, the date, and all that stuff. You know, just like it was a yeah. a real magazine. Um, so mm-hmm. that's interesting that you did that as well. Mm. Um, Probably not quite as organized as Anais was. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And then you took a big jump um, Mm -hmm. to write your thesis on Anais. Yeah. When I think about writing a thesis on Anais, and and I've I've known quite a few people who have described what that was like, and some people who wanted to write a thesis on Anais were never allowed to, it's Mm -hmm. kind of like climbing 
Annapurna, you know, uh, climbing, <laughs> climbing a mountain uh, to get this done. Um, and yet you undertook it. I could see your passion, you know, why you would do it. But what was that like? How did you decide to do this? And what was the reaction of your superiors to it? I suppose I it was never really a question for me. She was certainly the person who fascinated me endlessly. And I found that I got to have a little taste of what writing a PhD dissertation would be like uh, in my honours year at university where we had to write a little thesis. Um, I guess it's, it's just a little bit smaller than a master's. Um, and, yeah, you do it all in one year. And I had already decided I would look at Anais and, and kind of explain why I thought that she was so intriguing and intellectually juicy uh, because mm. in my undergrad studies we hadn't ever mentioned her and when I'd bring her up pretty much some of my older uh, lecturers would know who she was but that was it and they would always say oh Henry Miller and I use <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and and I suppose I really wanted to explain just why she was so fascinating and, and how many treasures there were to be found in Nin um, and share that. So when I wrote my honours thesis, I explored many different parts of um, roles that Anais had sort of transformed, roles of a woman, I suppose. And by the end of it, I had more questions than answers uh, <laughs> and and certainly much more stuff to unearth so so I just I had to continue on and write more and find out more so yeah I applied to do a PhD and decided to do that and it wasn't easy um, there were a lot of people within the academia I suppose who there were very much um trying to, I suppose, push their ideas about anti-essentialism, um, who should be valued as a writer, um, what's old-fashioned um, at me. And I even found myself with a supervisor for for quite a period of time at the beginning of my thesis who she would meet with me and every meeting she would say, well, why don't you write about this and why don't you write about that and why don't you write about this person? <laughs> None of it had anything to do with Anais. And she'd question me. She'd keep saying, why are you writing about Anais Nin? Who cares anymore? And I just, I couldn't wow. believe that, yeah, she just, yeah. And, and so I got rid of her. From my panel, that is. <laughs> for you. <laughs> um, because it wasn't, she wasn't asking me these questions to provoke answers so that I would write a thesis to explain just why, but rather she was discouraging me and, and, do, and trying to actively sort of push her will um, and, and her, her own, I suppose, intellectual motivations onto me. So after that, I continued on um, with another person who had been on my panel member for a while, uh, and he was great, but um, then a, a new woman came to uh, our university and she I met with her and she offered to be my head supervisor. And 
she just was incredible. From the get-go, she saw the vision that I had mm. for what I wanted the thesis to be about and how I wanted to write it. And she got excited about it and she was just on the page every second there and she pointed me in the direction of other theorists to read that would help me sort of um, bring out and, and sort of tease out some of the interesting themes in Nin's work. And she asked me all of the right questions and she challenged me when I needed to be challenged and um, and so it ended up being a spectacular journey led um, by well led by certainly mentored by a, a really incredible woman. Um, so I'm very indebted to her for yeah. that. It's like yeah. the old saying goes, you know, when the student is ready, the master comes along. Yes, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely was like that. Yeah, no, that's that's the way it ought to be, you know, mm. in my mm. opinion, but. Now, your theme of the thesis, uh, mm-hmm. from which, by the way, uh, we have drawn an article uh, that's in volume 13 of A Cafe in Space, is on Annie Eastneen's relationship with her mother. You know, to be honest, I haven't seen a whole lot of uh, material written on that relationship. What made you decide to go in that direction? Um, it was always my plan to really explore the maternal in Nin's work and, and the symbols of pregnancy and of birth and um, how she took on maternal roles with um, a lot of her partners in her relationships and the maternal ambivalence you could see in that where she didn't want to be self-effacing. She didn't want to give over her life and her desires um, for someone else, but yet she found herself in this position where she was often feeling like that was expected of her. Um, Mm -hmm. And when I looked at even the way she wrote about sexuality, there were these deep kind of, I guess, there were very um, blood rhythm descriptions of metaphors that were about being pregnant. And yet it didn't occur to me that all of this might also be related to her conception of the mother, and and it sounds silly, but again, if we go back to that idea of emasculation and, and that we're built on these stories that are often about the father and the son uh, that move away from the power of the mother, that, that make us feel ourselves, I think, ambivalent about our own mothers. And I guess I certainly did for quite a period of time. Um, and we're taught to value, I think, um, in a lot of the the sort of common narratives in our society, um, an idea of of what is strength, which Anais said herself is really about violence rather than about some deeper kind of powerful strength that might come from enduring pain and loving anyway, um, which I know my mother certainly taught me um, and really became a hero to me later on in life where I could truly recognize that and value it. Um, and I, I guess I was thinking about all of these things. What is a mother? What, um, what is Nin trying to do here? Why, if, if everybody talks about the central theme of her life as being her relationship with her father, um, why is the mother so prevalent? Why is it this omnipresent force in her work? And it was that yeah. supervisor I mentioned earlier who said to me, Jessica, what was... Nin's relationship with her own mother and I kind of at first I was just very dismissive too I sort of said oh um, her name was Rosa she was sort of 
burdensome to Nin at times. Uh, There's nothing really exciting there. Let's move on. And she said to me, you know, I think you should just maybe think about that a little further. Mm. So I did some research. And, I mean, if you look at Lenot, for example, in the index there, you can see over 100 references to Rosa in Nin's childhood diary. And many of those are about they go over 10 pages at a time where she's talking about her mother and the, her mother's lessons I think influence Nin to decide what it was not only to be a daughter but then to be a mother herself and and I think when she saw the limitations that Rosa faced out of love she decided very early on that that wasn't for her Anais didn't want to be a biological mother. She she almost needed to invent a cultural symbolic of the mother of as powerful first so that women could see that there were, and so everyone could see that there were other options to this maternal role, that the mother can be powerful and that we can reinvent what the mother means to us ourselves. We should uh, probably uh, also, you know, point out to our listeners that uh, Lenat was written during the time after Anais's father left the family and mm. the family had to, in order to survive financially, move to New York into a foreign world. And it was a very big struggle for the mother to support three children in yeah. New York City. It's interesting that Anais writes in her diary, Trapeze, when she's in her 50s and her mother is, has not much longer to live. She says, Every day I'm riled by the human condition, chores, nursing the sick, marketing, motherhood, and I have a religion, which is art, a class, a race, outside the human, all of which allows me to bear the human, which I hate. It happens that my father fits in this image of the artist. It's not the aristocrat, the eloquent man, but the aesthetic, the artist who enhanced and transformed reality. Your father, said my plain, prosaic mother once, had such a power for illusion. I just find that to be an incredible dichotomy. She was really torn. There was that ambivalence. And Nin herself speaks about, I guess, what some people now in spiritual circles called that shadow self the part the parts of your unconscious that are so deeply part of how you live your life that you almost go around assigning roles to other people and and telling yourself stories that might not be there based on some of the things that you're pressing down so deep inside of yourself and whilst Nin is there sort of lifting her father on a pedestal even when she's actively gone about uh, throwing him off that pedestal uh, she still is there I guess reproducing some of the values that he taught to her um, whilst knowing that they're not okay whilst feeling that that sort of sympathy and I'd say empathy with her mother and yet she doesn't want to turn out like that she does not want to be limited in the way that she saw her mother being limited and the only way for her to really do that was to figure out a way that she could sort of become the mother of herself and give birth to her desires and and sort of retrieve all of that stuff she'd buried down so Mm -hmm. deeply Mm -hmm. and really inspect it 
and yeah, make something valuable of that, make something liberated out of that. And I think it's once Rosa dies that Nin really sort of looks at all of Rosa's belongings, uh, I think because her brother felt so obviously just, he was grief struck, wasn't he? That, that Nin wanted to protect him from having to look at her mother's things, from having to look at her toothbrush. From, and, and during that time, Nin sort of thought about her mother with a kind of, I think she spoke about an ancient ritual of incorporating parts of your dead parents into yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where she sort of made peace of some of the elements of Rosa that she can, she acted out throughout her life just in a different way. Um, and she was bound by some of those same limitations in much the same way that she spent her life trying to sort of resist and defy and she made peace with those and incorporated them into her and then was able to heal and, and move forward with the parts of her mother that she wanted. And that was sort of Rose's legacy, the parts that Nin still took with her of her own volition. Yeah, she speaks of becoming very maternal uh, yeah. after her mother dies and mm-hmm. was actually afraid that she was becoming her mother. And, yeah. <laughs> yet, and yet in some way she was at peace with it. Her mother's death really did have a credible effect upon her. Yeah, yeah. And and her life too. I mean, you think of Nin's sort of constant um, remaking of life when she was writing, how she was always sort of sewing in new ideas and, and, and new ways of sort of looking at situations after that occurred and she's often accused of of being deceptive in that manner but really this was something that she saw as important that she learned again at an early age from Rosa about doing things and then undoing them and life being this sort of stitching process where you're weaving your subjective truth into what you've taken from the world and and coming out with something new yeah and yet with all that complexity, she was able to boil things down to simple statements. Like one of the things that she says in Trapeze is, My father did not love us. My mother did. On such a primitive basis, we face our image of the universe. Mm-hmm. You know, mother, mother is reclaiming herself as, as goddess, isn't she? <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, religion, again, uh, to some extent, taking that that power of giving a lo- of giving life away from women and symbolically putting a man there instead in place of that a father of all things mm-hmm. and, and his son of course um and yet it, yeah we we ignore the origins the genesis the, the true genesis which is our first relationship in this world which is through our mother um as fraught as that can be <laughs> yeah. It's pretty easy to find Anais's father in her writing, especially in the uh, novella Winter of Artifice, uh, mm-hmm. and also in the novella Stella. Uh, he, he plays a major role in both of those books. And the aspects of him appear, they're pretty obvious when they do in, in much of her fiction. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to figure out, maybe you, you could answer this question uh, better than I can. Do you ever see her mother in any of her work? 
<laughs> Absolutely. Everywhere. Yes. You ubiquitously in her diaries, um, yes. Yes. which I suppose, <laughs> yes. which is why, you know, uh, my PhD, for example, explorations were, were mainly within um, her diaries because it's there that she lays everything bare. And that's sort of, I think, what she wanted to leave to us, you know, I, uh, where, where her future children, who she left these to. Yeah, um, I, I, guess, I guess I should have rephrased that question uh-huh. in the fiction. But in the fiction, okay. <laughs> uh, so you, if you take, for example, Lillian in Ladders to Fire, mm-hmm. she is constantly battling that maternal ambivalence uh, you spoke earlier about Nin mentioning the primal mother. Well, Lillian is the primal mother, and yet mm-hmm. she feels that she's limited by that role, uh, and she's always sort of trying to sort of move beyond that, but yet she yeah. finds herself in that role. Um, and there's this lovely scene where she's sewing buttons and there's that thread and connection to the man that she loves, to her husband. Uh, she's sending him out into the world with this, uh, mended item of clothing and and the again the the thread the symbol the sewing is something that is straight from what happened between Rosa and Anais Nin uh, again in Lenot Nin sort of says to her mother as she's sewing uh, sorry Rosa says to Nin when she's sewing um, this is much like a life it's a process of of sewing and unsewing or stitching and unstitching. Mm. And we see that in, in so many stories. I think as well in House of Incest, you can see Nin exploring the the origins of the womb again there. She starts off with the water birth uh, and she's reimagining her own birth. She's she's sort of trying to superimpose that over the yeah. one. But, so she's trying to renew that and transform it for herself um, so that she can give birth to what she called her most authentic self by going to the first birthplace and then going into the sea of the subconscious and exploring that through the house of incest too. And the sea of the subconscious is, of course, uh, going to display every first familial relationship um, and it lets her sort of delve into psychoanalysis. And part of that is, again, the mother. And, and what do you do when who you were taught to be by your mother and your father is maybe not who now you choose to be? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So, so any birth story in Under a Glass Bell is another one, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so many of them are her going beyond. It's Alison Stone, another sort of feminist she she sort of writes the feminist theoretic of maternal subject talks about how when women become mothers they have to renegotiate their own maternal past so they have to remember what it was like to be a baby to their own mother Um, and then they maybe do something new something different or they repeat parts of of what they felt their mother did to them and I see Anais do that in all of her work when she's thinking about what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a mother. Yeah. <laughs> I think that there's nothing more clarifying of that point of view she had is when she had the late-term abortion mm-hmm. uh, in 1934, which is recorded in excruciating detail in her diary, Incest. Yeah. And it, it, it's hard to grasp really when 
you think of Ani's aborting a child and then mm-hmm. trying to rationalize this by saying that she is a mother, but not a mother to this child, not a biological mother, that she was an yeah. artistic mother or a spiritual mother. Mm-hmm. What courage, I think, what, what courage that shows. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and again, it shows that ambivalence that we keep returning to. It, it was obviously a difficult, painful ambivalent process of on the one hand feeling that she wanted to keep this baby she wanted to be a mother something deep and primal within her was yearning to keep and she wrote about wanting to keep the child when she first learned that she was pregnant and and she certainly felt very attached to being pregnant um, and and that feeling of being full that she describes but yet she knew as well that for her she wasn't willing to be a biological mother because at that time it would have limited her. She couldn't have then done the things that she wanted to do. So I think she writes beautifully about being torn between those two things. Um, And that's why it's so disgusting too when you see those reviews where they tear her to shreds for describing that abortion or for even choosing to have an abortion because she did not take it lightly. She, I don't think she writes about it in a crude way at all. She oh, writes no. about the pain and the violence mm. and, the, and the, yeah. It's, it's beautiful writing, but it is also very harrowing. Yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. You, you brought up this, this whole thing with the critics. Uh, mm. Yes, that's what, obviously that's one of the things that critics have attacked on the East for. And the incest that she had with her father. Mm. Between these two, uh, and if you want to add in bigamy and, and throw in a few other, you know, <laughs> taboos, you know, that she broke, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, it makes for a kind of a perfect storm of criticism. But, <laughs> but you know, you, you did a great job in your article really making us see how bad this criticism was and still is today um, mm-hmm. by describing how critics, even from the 1940s, began to attack her. The, the more well-known she became, the more she was attacked. Mm-hmm. And, and it really came to a head in the 90s, as you point out, uh, right around the time that incest came out. And then as an exclamation point to incest was the biography by Dieter Bear. These these two books really gave a lot of fuel to this sort of systemic hatred that uh, the, in particular the New York Times had for her. Could, could yeah. you just describe a little <laughs> of that for us? I mean, that, that just blows my mind. Yeah, I, I still feel angry when I <laughs> reread those reviews. Um, but they're really, on the one hand, they're very prurient. They want to talk about all of the salacious things that Nin was involved with. As you say, her her incest with her father, her sex life in general, her bigamy. Um, one of the, I think it was Bruce Boyer, uh, goes to mention that every man mentioned in the index Nin basically had sex with. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that, I guess, doesn't exclude her father. But they're so prudish at the same time. And and isn't that just telling that these reviews are just written by critics who are on the one hand obsessed with her sexuality, but on the other, they're so prudish about sexuality in general. Uh, and I think that still happens today that 
as a culture, we have a tendency to judge women who actively pursue their sexual desires. Um, and it even, I think, manifests in um, what then becomes po popular. So we like to say that now a sexual liberation where we're, we're sort of looking at television shows these days and television shows are popular like Sex and the City was a big one um, and even the way that people get into reading Fifty Shades of Grey. But or these girls. are essentially based on women who are handing their sexual desires over to someone else who take who then gives it to them and they don't have to ask for it. So we're talking about women who still are passive sexually. Yeah, I was so just, I think it's really threatening, isn't it? I, I was watching Girls <laughs> this afternoon. You know, oh, the, the, love Girls. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I think that's a great example of what you're talking about. Mm. New York Times seems to have, have it in for unease, and they have for a long yeah. time. Yeah. Um, and as you pointed out in the article, the newest diary, Mirages, didn't even get reviewed by them. They, they didn't review right. it, which I'm not sure is a good thing. I guess even bad criticism is better than no criticism. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So I, I was interested to see how you felt about that, because when I was looking for reviews, more recent reviews, as I say, you couldn't find them. They they started writing terrible things about her, mostly around the 90s, and then they just stopped yeah. You defer back to what Anais Nin wrote in Novel of the Future about critics, couldn't you? I mean, uh, she wrote about the distortions of of critics and, and how basically anyone is allowed to be a critic. <laughs> uh, and often people are assigned books uh, to write um, on where they're not really sort of qualified to reflect on them and they can't help but bring their personal likes and dislikes into that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's yeah. not useful. Yeah, and, and, and Trapeze, uh, you know, she she calls out these critics. Uh, she mm -hmm. writes on really nasty letters, and basically says that you, know, who are you to to review this book in the first place? You know, what qualifications do you have? Uh, yeah. You know, what background do you have? And you basically call them arrogant little bastards, you know. <laughs> she didn't use those words, yeah. obviously, but that, I mean, she was pretty forceful in her letters. Mm -hmm. And uh, But my point was before that, that the critics really did have a, a an effect on Unease because the year after that uh, biography came out, uh, Harcourt basically dropped Unease. Uh, mm. Harcourt's the big publisher over here who uh, put all her diaries into print, including the unexpurgated ones. And for maybe, I'm going to say, a good 10 years after that all happened, Ani East was nowhere. She was nowhere. Uh, nobody mm -hmm. was writing about her. Nobody was talking about her. So there was this long desert after all of that happened before you know, things started to pick up a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, maybe 10 years later. How do you see this happening today? Do you see this going in, a, in the right direction in terms of Ani East's reputation and popularity in the world, or what, what, what do you think about that? I hope so. I'd, I'd like us to sort of celebrate the fact that she was seen as a dangerous woman uh, for, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. for uh, young people because she is a dangerous woman for us in the best kind of way. Uh, and I think that that's why you can see a renewed interest in Nin's work. Um, mm -hmm. I've, I saw the other day you reposted that there's a another PhD being written on her. Yeah. I know that Ruth Sharnock wrote 
a beautiful PhD on Nin and, and she's also looking at writing a book um, based on Nin. Um, I'd like to write a book as well. I think that there are a juicy things still yet to explore from all sides uh, when it comes to Nin and and thanks to your podcast, thanks to the Anais Nin blog, all of that, we, we've got so much rich material to look at and I think that she'll really be taken up um well she already is really being taken up again and and maybe seen for the first time in some respects um because she I think it was Lena Dunham who even reflected on how Nin wrote for a future that wasn't there yet uh, mm-hmm. so that it could be and I think we are that future and and sort of people today and, and young women today especially are really looking for for someone like Nin who was brave enough, who was courageous enough to test myths and roles out with her own body um, and that meant true liberation. Uh, and why should we be afraid of that? Why shouldn't we explore what that meant for Nin? And she was just so insightful when she reflected back on what it meant so I think she has a lot to contribute in so many fields of knowledge even um, what she contributed to psychoanalysis I think hasn't yet been fully explored and should be yeah 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 so I think there's there's a lot more to do so hopefully yes. you'll keep publishing lots more for us to read yes. <laughs> and write on. yeah there's there is a mountain of stuff and mm. you know we're we're getting through it and mm. Yeah, we we hope that Trapeze will be out sometime this year, uh, which is the next issue of The Unexpurgated Diary. Uh, so what about you? Uh, have you published anything? Are, are you you have any work out there we should know about? I was blessed enough to be published in your latest cafe in space. <laughs> so that, that was actually my first. Um, so, yeah. From now on, I'm going to be reworking my thesis into hopefully some sort of manuscript so I can look at publishing a book on Anais and maternal subjectivity. And I'd like to I'd like to sort of delve into as many Nin related things as I can and projects as I can. So I'm interested in collaborating with anyone who wants to collaborate. Um, I'd love to start a YouTube channel that is essentially a Nin book club um, where we can all read Nin together and reflect on what we read. Um, I'd love to take Nin quotes and and use them as writing prompts and and work Mm. with people to do that sort of thing because I think writing practice is somewhere, again, that Nin can really offer her treasures to us all. Yeah, yeah, so I don't think I'll ever lose interest in the naive so it'll be a lifelong scholarly project for me where I'll be writing scholarly articles and doing more research and talking to people but also um, I think if if we can um, discuss Nin more in popular circles as well then that would be really thrilling it says yeah there's a lot more to do <laughs> yes uh, we're fighting the good fight yeah <laughs> Okay, Jessica, I just want to thank you very much for appearing on the podcast, and we're really looking forward to seeing your work out there. Yay! Thank you so much, Paul, and thank you for everything you've done for NIN Scholarship. Oh, thank you. To read Jessica Gilby's article in its entirety, get Volume 13 of A Cafe in Space on Amazon, Apple, or any other vendor. 
This has been the Ana Isnin Podcast. Thanks for listening. Until the next time.